0: The following sermon is brought to you by the preachersvault.com, bringing old-time preaching to a new generation. We have come with open hearts, let the ancient in. I'd be amiss if I didn't first thank Brad for leading that song. That's exactly the song that we needed for today. That's actually going to be the sermon title, the topic, the thing that we're discussing. And that is the very blood of Jesus Christ. I'm thankful it was Brad leading it because Brad brings a certain energy sometimes to songs that we all need in us. And then on top of that, we get the sincerity of David's prayers. And I appreciate that. I don't know if I say that enough publicly. But David, uh, boy, he inspires me to work harder in my prayer life because we certainly need to communicate to God. Our every need. So thank you for that. This song right here that we just led, I don't know that there are very many. There are certainly some, but I don't know there are very many songs in our song books that are more appropriate and more true than that. Those two questions, there are several, but the main two that stand out in my mind that are asked, what can wash away my sins? The answer, nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? The answer, Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And that's certainly true. And so if you want to open your Bibles this morning to the book of 1 Peter, I'm going to be stealing from Cliff's book. We're going to be looking 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. Now again, as I joked in the last hour about Cliff and his progress in the book so far, I have no fear at all because by the time he gets down to verses 18 to 25, it may be next year and you've forgotten this, so don't worry about it. Uh, but we are studying that book on Wednesday nights, so if there's something that you hear uh, today that does appeal to you, just know that we are gonna be studying it and continue to study it much more deeply on Wednesday nights. So if you're not a part of that class, maybe you uh, don't often come on Wednesdays, I would encourage you to do that because wonderful, wonderful lessons that are being taught already from this book, and this will just be a section out of that. So 1 Peter 1, 18 to 25. It's pretty much the song itself. If you wanna read it and see it through those eyes, I'll be reading from the New King James this morning, but here's what it says. Knowing that we are not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold from your aimless conduct, received with the traditions of your fathers. Watch the verse 19 beginning there. But with the precious blood of Christ, as a lamb without blemish and without spot, he, that is Christ, indeed foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in the last times for you, through, or who through him, uh, believe in God who were raised from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Verse 22, since, some translations say if, but the Greek word would be since here, first class conditional if, since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit in sincere love of the brethren, And love one for another fervently with a pure heart. Having been born again. Verse 23. Not of corruptible seed but of incorruptible by the word of God. Which lives and abides forever. Because. And then we have a quotation here. Because all flesh is as grass. Isaiah 40 verse 6 through 8. And all the glory of man is the flower of the grass. And the grass withers and the flower falls away. But the word of God endures forever. And then that phrase that seemingly is connected to chapter 2, but certainly should be connected to chapter 1. Now this is the word which by the gospel is preached to you. So I want to notice a number of things, and this comes from the text, although the song brought these things out as well, that we can learn concerning this. First of all, I want you to notice here the fact that nothing but the blood of Jesus can purchase a sinner. That's what was said there in the very first verse. Knowing not knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things such as silver and gold. Do you understand what it means to redeem something? To redeem something, sometimes we think about redeeming a coupon, that sort of thing, but the whole idea is that something has been bought back. Something has been bought back into our possession. Maybe you've been on the far end of that. Maybe you've had something in your life. might have been a vehicle. In my case, it certainly would have been that. But maybe you've had something in your life and you determined for whatever reason you didn't use that, you didn't need that, or maybe it was costing you too much to keep it up, and you determined that you were going to sell that to someone else. And then no sooner does it get out of your sight and out of your possession, you look at that and say, you know what, I look for the day when I can buy that back. Because what I had in my possession was the best that I could have had. It was better than I assumed. It was more than I appreciated such. And maybe I'd taken it for granted. I want it back. And the blood of Jesus has been able to do that. When you think about the fact that it purchased the sinner, it was a redemption payment. He says, in clarifying that, he said, we are not redeemed with corruptible things such as silver and gold. Watch the next phrase there. From your aimless conduct. From your conversation, King James speaks, your vain conversation received by the traditions of your father. So a couple things already then. When you think about the fact that the blood of Jesus can purchase sinner, number one, it is a redemption payment. But it is also in this last phrase of verse 18, in some sense is a ransom payment. When you think about a ransom, I've seen many of those throughout my life. I don't know it happens as often publicly as it used to. But I can remember when I was a child seeing a kid being kidnapped. This was probably on Unsolved Mysteries or something uh, back then. But a child had been kidnapped. And what they had done, they took the child, they removed the child from the home, uh, took it away from his parents, and then they sent notes back and they demanded a ransom. They demanded money. And you know, if that were to happen to any of us, would it be a child or a grandchild or a family member, a parent, whatever, if you and I would have received a note and someone demanded of us money, what would our effort be to get them back? It would be pretty great. And in this case, he tells us that we were redeemed, yes, but the ransom was paid to buy us back from our, quote, aimless King James speed uh, manner of life or aimless conduct that was once the traditions of our fathers. And so what he's telling us here is that we, in following after our fathers in tradition, that means learned activities, that means following in the footsteps of our fathers, at times our lives have been empty. Our lives could have been vain in some senses, but it's always been Christ's intention for that purpose, to buy us or to purchase us back, to redeem us, and to be willing to pay the ransom for us. I don't know that any ransom payment, quote-unquote, has ever been greater than what Christ did when he died there on the cross. His blood had more value. His blood had more purpose. His blood had more intention behind it than anything that has ever been set forth. And these are just obvious things that are right here on the page. But here's what really gets me to thinking. It's not just the fact that it could purchase a sinner by its redemption payment, and it's ransom payment, but in in this sense, and this is what I have to remind myself of, it was, for God at least, a reasonable payment. Again, putting the third two already we mentioned there in line there, if your child, if your loved one was to be taken away from you, and someone were to come back to you and say, look, you you can pay enough money or you can give enough goods, and I'll give them back to you. Or you can pay this ransom and they'll be yours again. They'll be right back in your home. Things will be just like they always were. They'll be uh, lovey-dovey and rosy just as they were. You'd be completely restored. Would there ever be a price that could be placed in that situation where you say, well, that's just not reasonable? I don't think there's anybody. I know, I know there's not one person in this room who has a million dollars in their back pocket. Am I I telling the truth? Is there anybody in this room that's got a billion dollars in the bank? Well, if you do, we better change that board up there for one, but (laughs) nobody has that. But what if someone took your child or took your loved one, or in this case, in this society, what if someone took your pet and they came back in and said, I tell you what, you can have them back but you're going to have to pay me a million dollars. And you might say to yourself, in one sense, you might say, well, that's not even reasonable. Why is it not reasonable? Because I don't have it. But if you love them enough, at some point you'd say, look, I don't care what it is, from one perspective, it it, it is reasonable. If I had it or if I could get it or if I could uh, borrow it or, or take it in some manner, I'd give it for that. Jesus Christ's blood is the only thing in this world, in this life, in all of eternity that can literally purchase a sinner. Look at how that's done though. You look at John chapter 1 and verse 29. You don't have to turn necessarily there, but if you want to jot it down, or even if you do turn there, look at what was said about Jesus. This is John the baptizer noticing Jesus. I imagine that he was crossing a field or or something of that sort. John yelled out and said, Behold the Lamb of God, watch what he did, that taketh away the sin of the, what's that next word? World. Not just my sin, Not just your sin, not just anyone's sins, but the whole sins of the whole world. And you can assume that that payment was high enough, that redemption, that ransom, that reasonable payment was high enough to take away the sins of all the world for all time. You know, we can do some calculations, and and some have done this. They say, well, according to what we know biblically, and I'm I'm separating that from science, but biblically, we might say, well, the world has been in existence as we know it for approximately six to eight. I've seen as high as 10,000 years. None of them are in the billions or millions or trillions like they would claim. And we know that there may be a timeline by which we could trace that back. But who among us knows how long the world may exist? Who among us knows how many people may live? How many souls may need to be redeemed by this? There's no no measure of that for us. His price was high enough. Look at the next verse. That was verse 18. Look at verse 19. Not only do we know that it could purchase a sinner, but secondarily to that, also it could provide a Savior. Keep reading there in verse 19, carrying it into verse 20. Here's what it says. You're being redeemed from your fathers, but, that's the key word, with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without spot or without blemish. We mentioned John 1, That's what John says as well. For he indeed, watch this word, was foreordained, key word, before, key word, the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times, key words here, the last two, For you. It could purchase a sinner, but it could provide a Savior. Number one, I want to notice with you that that Savior was anticipated. You know, so many people, when they think about Jesus, when they think about His coming, or especially when they think about... um, his, his second coming or even the, in the middle of that, the sandwich of that, His establishment of the church. So many look at Jesus in the religious world. and I have to use those quotes as wide as I can get him in loosely as I can. They say, well, what God actually did by sending Jesus, that was just some kind of a backup plan. That was God just trying to come up with an idea that maybe might and somehow may fix things. Or that was God just coming up, you know, because Jesus was, was, was slain and hung on a cross. Then God's secondary plan was, well, I'll send him back again later this is some religions now not biblical but I'll just send him back again later and he'll have another coming and then he'll establish a kingdom literally they say on the earth and he'll rule and reign over it and all of man will have a second chance at time and that's not what he said here these verses said that Jesus Christ, it was determined that He would be able to be provided as a Savior, quote unquote, before the foundation of the world. What does that mean? Prior to, if you want to put a scripture behind it, put Genesis negative 1-1. One, one. That's where you place it. Right before you get to God having the, the breath of Him to come out and it being said of Him that in the beginning, quote, God created the heavens and the earth. Sometime prior to that, before the foundations were laying of the world, Jesus Christ was sent to be a Savior. And so wait a minute, I don't, I don't read that. We well, don't have to get far in the Scripture to be assured of that. We get down as far as Genesis 3... Verses 15 to 17. Now, a lot of times we'll emphasize 15, but 15 to 17 is actually a three-point sermon preached by God on how Jesus would come and save man from his sin. And he's very specific in that. And we know that people have a long time been interested in knowing this because if you're in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse uh, we're reading right now, verses 19 and 20, just go right back up the page. I'll have to flip one page to get to it, but go right back up the page. Read with me beginning in verse 10. Verse 10, kind of dropping in on the context, mind you, but verse 10 beginning says this, of this salvation, that's what we're talking about, Jesus being a Savior, Of this salvation, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, King James speak diligently, and prophesied of the grace of God that would come to, last word is the key, to you. Searching, verse 11. What manner of time, the Spirit of Christ, who was in them and indicating when He testified beforehand of the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them it was revealed, verse 12. But not to themselves, but to, key word, us. They were ministering the things which are often reported and through those things which are preached of the gospel and you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven and the angels desired, what's that next phrase? To look into. So the salvation that God deemed to establish, quote, before the foundation of the world, the angels and the prophets, they wanted to know about that. Why? Because it wasn't a plan B. Because it wasn't something that was set into place after the fact that Jesus died on the cross and God had to come back with another idea. It was always in the mind and the intention of God for that to be the case. So number one, he was a Savior because he was anticipated. Number two, We also learn from this text, he was likewise a savior because he was accepted as such. Now, if you're like I am, you've had to turn one page to get back to that, just the way your layout of your Bible was. I don't typically ask people to turn very much, but I would ask you to turn to one place here. Go to Hebrews chapter 10 with me for just a moment. You'll be going backwards. Go toward your left. Hebrews chapter 10, look at what is said in Hebrews chapter 10 beginning in verse 1. He was anticipated, true enough, but he was also, Jesus became the acceptable Savior. Look at what had happened in the Old Testament, for example. For the law, that is the law of the Old Testament, law of Moses, chapter 10 and verse 1, having a shadow of good things to come, not the very image of those things, Can never with these sacrifices, King James says those sacrifices, same principle, can never with these sacrifices which you offer continually year by year make those who approach perfect, verse 2. Then would they have not ceased to be offered? For the worshipers, once purified, would have no more consciousness of sins, verse 3. But... In those sacrifices, which ones? The ones of the Old Testament, the blood of bulls and goats. In those sacrifices, he says, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is not possible. You mark in your Bibles, and I say this all the time, I, I, I highlight, I underline, I do all. If I put a box around something for me, that's just my personal way of doing it. If I put a box around something, it's the biggest part of the text. And the key part of the text here is in the word not. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. And the real idea there is can take away any sin. Keep up the reading, verse 5. Therefore, when he, who is that Jesus, came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offerings... You did not desire, but a body. Psalm 40, verse six and eight. "But a body has been prepared for me and burnt an offering the sacrifice of sin, for there is no pleasure. And I said, behold, I have come, Watch this now in the volume of the book. And it is written of me to do your will, O God. Now, what those quotations are telling us is that Jesus Christ came to this earth because he was anticipated, but because he was also accepted. Why? Because all the other sacrifices, albeit they were pleasing to God, from the perspective of they were commanded and fulfilled by those who committed such, they were not accepted as the final sacrifice. That meant that they could have offered every animal that ever came before their eyes to God and never have acceptably been cleansed of their sin. None of those bulls, none of those goats were ever going to be their savior. Now, I was too hot this morning to wear my coat. Some illustration doesn't bear out as right. But if I had my coat on this morning and if, in the, if, if, if inside of my jacket were sticks of dynamite and I chose to detonate that in this assembly, it wouldn't take away not one sin from one person, not any time. I could not sacrifice myself on your behalf. Neither could I line up every piece of cattle or livestock we have in this entire state and bring in this room and sacrifice them on behalf of my sin or any of yours. But this says Jesus' sacrifice was accepted. That's two things. Number one, it was anticipated. Number two, go back to 1 Peter, it was accepted. But number three, notice this as well, it was accomplished. It was accomplished. Now, this is not as directly in the text, it's more implied, but if you keep up the reading there, it says that he, verse 20, I'm in verse 20, 1 Peter 1, he indeed foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifested, watch this phrase here, in last times, and I emphasized this word a moment ago, for you. Why did Jesus hang and die on a cross? We just... Uh, Through commemoration of such, through the Lord's Supper, we just reminded ourselves of that fact. Why did Jesus hang and die on the cross as he did? Answer for you. Because he was, in that sense, finishing, through that sense, completing his work. It was accomplished. You want a reference for that? You can write in your margin. Write down this verse. There are two or three occasions where this is actually recorded, but you can write down John chapter 19 and verse 30. That's where Jesus, hanging on the cross, there cried out the words, "It is finished." Now you can discuss all the things that are involved in that. For one thing, the old law was finished. All that that they had had to endure that sacrifice in that context you read from Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1 to 7, of blood of bulls and goats who although were pleasing to God but not acceptable to God, all those things, all those laws, that itself was finished. Likewise, the work of our Lord and Savior, we call him here, was likewise finished. Think about just three basic areas in which Jesus worked. Number one, we realize Jesus worked by his words, right? He walked about the face of this earth in front of real human beings face to face, and he used the vehicles of communication called words to speak to people to teach them. When he hung on the cross, he was done with that. For all intents and purposes, not saying he would never, as he would be resurrected, never speak, but I mean for his main brunt of his intentions, he was finished with that. We read in John chapter 12 and verse 48 that it is by his words, w r d words, that we are judged. He's the standard of judgment. He became that. He was God incarnate, God in body, and he therefore became that. He was a savior in that. Secondary that, his will was finished. All that he hoped to do, all his desires that were there, they were finished. Remember how it's recorded uh, as Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane. We read that he prayed three different occasions to his father. In each of those prayers, the one or two things he was asking for. Number one, he was asking, uh, quote, let this cup, this suffering, cup of suffering pass from me. But his reply to that, in speaking to God the Father, he said, however, not my will, but thine will be done. What do we read in that? We read of submission. And that's the attitude to have in our lives. If we use that as a pattern by which we live, if Jesus submitted to the will of the Father, so obviously I should. But this is where it gets tricky and it's where it gets difficult when you think about the Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, Jesus, God the Spirit. It's the fact that when Jesus said not my will, he meant my human will. But when he said but thine will, he meant the will that he possessed along with the Father being done. So see, if you ask that tricky question, did Jesus, was he able to accomplish his will on earth? The answer is yes, absolutely he was. Because his will was God's will. So question comes to my mind, is my will same as the will of God? Meaning, do I have the same desires? While Jesus was on earth, he was able to accomplish things through his word, through his will, and then finally through his wonders. Every one of those miracles, every one of those mighty deeds, those signs as you read them, depending on the, uh, whether you're reading in Matthew, Mark, or Luke's account and the view that they had of those, all of those miraculous supernatural acts that Jesus committed to doing, whether it being the laying on of hands to lift a lame man, The touching of an ear to have it to be healed. The touching of eyes to have the blindness to be taken away or the ears to be opened. All those miracles line up to prove his deity in one sense and at the same time they prove that he was able to do wonders. And we're blessed. We're blessed to be able to read through this Bible, through the gospel accounts particularly, and to see all those wondrous things that he did. You know, sometimes we'll say to ourselves, or we'll say about ourselves, we'll say, you know what, if I had only been there, you're as closely, I'm as closely to there as I'll ever be. And, and the inspired word of God and the record of those wonders is simply good Enough. but you know the most miraculous act Jesus ever was able to accomplish? You say, well, the raising of a dead man, that'd be right there at the top of my list. The casting out of demons, certainly that was something that would have been possible for others to do. Again, the relieving of the deaf and the lame and the blind and the halt no greater than the way that he was able to die and his blood to be shed, and then our sins through baptism have that blood to be taken away. Who among us would like to be asked to explain in detail exactly how, how, being baptized in water, immersed in water, how does that possibly take away the sin of a man? Here's the answer I give. I don't know. I don't know. But confidence in faith says it does. Scriptures prove that is the only way it does. And we know that if it does happen that way, and it does, it happens because He is Savior. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Why? Why? Because he himself can purchase a sinner. What can wash away my sins? The blood of Jesus. Why? Because he, in that sense, can provide a Savior. God did so. Now look at the next place and we'll be closing with this. Pick up the reading in verse 22. Well, we'll pick up in 21 to bleed into 22. Who through him believed in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope in God. Since, again, I stated earlier that maybe if in some translations, first class conditional means since it did happen. Since you have purified, now this is a peculiar term. I've already got it underlined, but I think I'll just take time to do it one more time. Since you have purified your souls... Hold on. Does this blow everything we're talking about? How great Jesus' blood was and all that he's able to accomplish? And then, and then it's actually stated here that you, us, we are purifying or having our souls to be purified. Watch how this happens. This is the third point. Nothing but the blood of Jesus can purify our souls. How? since you have purified your souls in obeying key word the truth through the spirit and the sincere love of the brethren then quote love one another one another with a pure heart how does that accomplish how could it some, in some senses be said that we purify our souls at the same time being consistent in the fact that it's really Jesus who does that? Because we have a part to, to go for. We have something to do. We, number one, have to be obedient. Obedient. We have to do what he says. What did Jesus say on a number of occasions but one comes to mind? Why call you me Lord, Lord? And what's the next phrase? and do not the things which I say. It's disturbing that he face to face had to actually ask people that, but the fact is he did. And it'd do good for me, at least in my imagination, to be able to picture on a daily basis the Lord asking me a very similar question. Why are you calling me to be your Lord? That's the key word, master. Master. Why are you wanting to be your master and then you won't even do what I tell you to do, Jim Murrell? Why not? In order to have my soul to be purified, I must. Look at that last phrase, though. It's through obedience. Now, what does that obedience involve? Well, he said purify your souls in obeying the truth. There are a couple things that have to be done. Number one, there has to be belief. You have never in your life, go back to your childhood. For me, that was like yesterday, I'm pretty sure. Go back to your childhood and ask yourself, if you obeyed your parents, why that was because you believed. That's why. Now, for my case, maybe some of the youngers don't understand this. For my case, I believe the consequence. That's why I did it. I mean, it wasn't anything about love at that point. It was believing in consequences. (coughs) Love motivates us later in life. And it should in the spiritual side. But we obey God because we believe Him. That's what was able to take away their sins. That's what allowed Jesus as the Savior to in turn purify the soul. Because of us believing in him. Number two, it came because of birth. You remember when Jesus was encountered, the record is found in John chapter 3. Nicodemus comes unto Jesus and he has questions about salvation, basically. He has questions about (coughs) eternal life. And what Jesus said is this, except you be born, watch this phrase now, of water and of spirit you can know why see, King James speak, enter into, experience is a better word, the kingdom of heaven. What does that mean? There's no salvation. There's no salvation outside of heaven. There's no salvation outside of freedom from our sins. There's no salvation outside of a savior. There's no salvation outside of purifying of the soul. And that is done through obedience, that it's led by belief and birth. Now, why not even insert the birth? Because so many in the world today who consider themselves to be saved are not saved, at least according to the pattern in Scripture, because they have not been born again. You know, I, I can tell you as a as a member of the, the church and a preacher of what I know to be the truth of the gospel, I can tell you that I hesitate sometimes to use a phrase to look at someone and say you need to be born again. Why? Because it's been so abused. So abused by the world. That's the fact. So it purifies us through obedience. Number two, it purifies us to opportunity. That's where this next phrase comes in. That's where the phrase that seems, I'll be honest with you, seems a bit out of place. Verse 22, to read it again. Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit in sincere love of the brethren... Love one another with a pure heart in the love of the breath. That's the opportunity that's provided. If you want to show your love to any any human being on the face of this earth, there is no greater way to show them the love that you have for them than to show them this Savior on these pages and to encourage them to know that he's came for them also to purchase them as a sinner, to let them know that he has come for them also as a provided Savior. He has come for them also to have been purified of their souls. That's just the thanksgiving that we give back to God because we are saved. Ephesians 2 and verse 10 talks about us being his workmanship. Created, watch the phrase, in Christ Jesus unto good works. To the doing of good works. What greater work exists than to show people that there's nothing but the blood of Jesus? And we close because we have to read the context. He says, Having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, watch this, through the word of God which lives and abides forever. And then the illustration in the quotation from Isaiah. All flesh is as grass and the glory of man is a flower of the grass. For the grass withers and the flower falls away. But the word of the Lord endures forever. Not Uh, now this is the word which the gospel is preached. What is he saying there? He's saying that there will be a point in time, there is a pointed example here in the text of the fact that we know that most things in life, such as flowers and grass, they come and they go, they live and they die. We are absolutely no different. On our corruptible side. But when we're redeemed, back up the page, with corruptible things such as silver and gold, we're being redeemed away from that by the incorruptible things of verse 23. So there's a sandwich here. We got verse 18, you got verse 23. And he said that comes by the word W O R D of God. Now, three times in the context of 1 Peter, the word Word, W R D God, is used, translated from different forms of the word. In the case we look at right here in verse 23, It is the Word of God. That's the Logos. That's the living God. That's Jesus. You drop down the page there and you see in verse number 25, the latter half of it. Now this is the Word which the gospel is preached. The word, Word there is backed up by a Greek word, rhema, which means a spoken word. If you were to go across the page and we're not taking the time to do it necessarily, but if you look on into chapter 2 and verse 6, 1 Peter, Therefore, it is also contained in the scripture. That's the same thing. That's the word word. However, that is the graphe, the written word. What does that mean? When I use the written word and I accept it as a spoken word of God, I can also accept the logos, the living word of God, which guess what logos? That's Jesus. What's the final principle? Nothing but the blood of Jesus can preserve a saint. Where do you want to land in eternity? That, maybe that's the terrible phrase. Where do you want to spend eternity? answer simple for anyone, especially among our group. We want to be in heaven with God. We want to be in a place where we can remain for eternity. Not even defined as forever, in a sense. Greater than that. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. If you're here this morning, you're not a child of God's. There's no pattern. There's no plan. There's no prescription. There's no description or anything else that could be given for someone to say, well, i tell you what. If you want to be saved, you can do it by this means and that. No. It's through the blood of Jesus. Religions around the world look to something they claim to be greater than Jesus. They give him credit as being a prophet, maybe at best, maybe just a good teacher. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And as the context bears out, that blood is accessed through obedience and through being born again, even as our example is shown in the way we're commanded through water. If you're here this morning, you're not a child of God's. I'll assure you the water behind me, there's enough. I'm going to tell you, it might be warm enough. It's warm enough. I'm going to tell you, it might be comfortable. It wouldn't make any difference. It's much more comfortable than eternity without being obedient to God. I would encourage you, and the Bible would teach you through faith, repentance, confession, and baptism, you put on Christ. You come in contact, Revelation 1 and verse 5, with the blood of Jesus. And then all these things we listed or or were listed in the context that we sang about earlier are accomplished. Today is the day for that. Today is the moment for that. You say, well, tomorrow may be, tomorrow may be, as we would sing in other hymns and be true as well. Too late. If you're here this morning, you're like, I am your child of God's. There's no doubt you were willing at some point to be obedient to him and maintain that to some extent through your faith. But it's so easy to lose our appreciation for how great and how capable the blood of Jesus really is. We sin and we fail. We lose sight. But we can come back to him this morning. This is just an opportunity. It's a part of your life that does exist that we're at least relatively sure of, if I'll shut up, we can come to Him through repentance and prayer. We have an invitation song that's been chosen, tremendously encouraging. If you want to stand and sing with us, we encourage you to be obedient and faithful to Him.